Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about pelvic floor health. Also, if you could have a 90% chance of preventing a painful, debilitating condition, would you take a vaccine? We're talking about shingles. Also talking migraines and the myriad symptoms might surprise you. One in particular, the Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You know, oftentimes I am talking about how important exercise is. It is. It's, it's important for overall health. Um, but, you know, it's often prescribed for something else as well. And it's often just prescribed. Doctors these days are writing prescriptions for get out into nature, which is an ex- it's, it's not saying exercise, but in order to get out into nature, you do have to do some form of exercise, whether it's walking or, or hiking or, or going for a, a, a stroll or even a roll. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a very important aspect of overall health, but oftentimes it's thought of that it's good for something else, something else that is one of the biggest health issues in our society today. It's very difficult to know for sure how many people experience this particular health concern, but the best current estimates um, put this at about one in 10 people experience symptoms that are consistent with this particular health issue. You're probably wondering, what this particular health issue is by now. Scarily, in fact, one in five people might experience this particular health issue at least once in their lifetime. That's 20% of people might know exactly what I'm talking about when I say depression is one of the biggest health issues in society today. Most unfortunately, there is still a tremendous stigma associated with depression. Um, and so there's shame and secrecy around it. So people don't like to tell other people that they're experiencing depression, but it's, it's can be described as joyless, unable to feel joy. People feel flat, but additionally, treating depression is very difficult in part because people are often too depressed to actually seek help. The most common medications that are used to treat the condition, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, often have uncomfortable side effects like decreasing sexual desire, for example, can have low libido with those. People can have dry mouth. They can have insomnia, um, heart palpitations, nausea, other gastrointestinal symptoms. And so they often stop taking them over time. Also, people don't have the patience sometimes to wait the the two to six weeks that they need to optimize. In fact, it takes a couple of weeks for those meds to cross the blood-brain barrier. And sometimes people are already fe- who are already feeling hopeless oftentimes give up. So effective treatment can be a very, very challenging struggle, a very serious struggle for people. But Sometimes you might read or you might hear, or you might even say to people, get up and get out, go and exercise. This might be what you think of as the panacea, or people might not want to take medication because they feel that they, 
it's a, it adds a little bit more shame or stigma, um, or they think I'll just exercise my way through this. And if you read some of the recent headlines, you might actually believe that yourself. It, it seems that some scientists have demonstrated that exercise, simple physical workouts, is more effective um, as a treatment for depression than some of the common medications, the SSRIs, the Prozacs, the Zolofs, the Paxils, those are the SSRIs. And there may have been a time when you needed to be on one of those medications, but there also may have been a time, in fact, I, I worked with somebody who had a, a severe depression. We were at a conference, they were sleeping um, most of the conference. They um, would come into work and, and talk about how they were depressed, but they were doing yoga and lighting candles and walking in the woods and actually thinking that this was going to help them, but it didn't. And it really impacted their work, in fact. And it started to you know, really show, and it made it difficult, not just for them, but for other people as well in the workplace. But they were completely against medication. Anyway, um, a lot of people themselves believe that exercise might be better than medication. And in fact, if you've been living with anybody, with somebody who's experienced depression, you too might say, get up, go outside, go for a walk, do some exercise, go for a bike ride, begging and pleading with them to no avail because it's very difficult for people with depression to be motivated at all um, at times, even if the answer to their problem is on the other side of the room. They have a hard time getting up and walking over to get this. So when you see these headlines or, or these myths that exercise or yoga or candles are gonna help with depression, you know, you really need to look further than just the headlines. You know, we see it all over the news these days. You know, they put these headlines up to grab your attention. And this certainly grabbed mine. Unfortunately, the evidence that that they presented doesn't show that exercise, which is very good for you, but the evidence looking at whether exercise for depression is a good treatment doesn't pan out. And the reason why is because of the study that was done. And, um, you know, it was, it was actually a meta study. And so it's, it's an aggregate aggregation. So it's actually a collection of all the studies together. And, um, after aggregating all the studies, the paper in question found that quote, physical activity is highly beneficial for improving symptoms of depression, anxiety, and distress across a wide range of adult populations, which is actually a pretty significant endorsement from a scientific paper. But once again, this didn't pan out. This was published recently in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And so it's effectively a systematic review. It looks at all the evidence. It looks at all the studies. What, what systematic reviews do is they look at all the studies on a particular topic and say exercise for depressive symptoms and people undergoing chemotherapy, for example. And then the umbrella review aggregates all those systematic reviews into one enormous meta-study. And so this particular 
review looked at a total of 97 review papers covering more than a thousand randomized trials. And that is a massive amount of data, but you have to dig past that. You know, you have to look at what, what, how was the study designed? Was it a gold standard? Um, you know, and, and the aggregation of a bunch of studies together, yeah, that is a gold standard, but you have to look at the particular studies themselves. So the review itself didn't look at exercise versus medication. It just looked at exercise against care as usual. And, you know, there's also a big issue with these reviews. And, and so that's why you have to speak to your doctor about when you see something like this, or when you think something is going to help somebody that you love or that you care about, that you think, oh, exercise is the answer for you. Because I saw this in this big headline after all these scientists did this particular review. But the quality of the research is so much more important than the quantity, especially when it comes to systematic reviews, because they can pull together questionable research. So you, you really have to look deeper. And when, when you look deeper into this particular study, um, the evidence was very, very slim. In fact, out of those 97 studies that they pulled together, only about seven of them actually were, were related to exercise for depression. Um, you, you know, movement for movement therapy for improving psychological and physical outcomes in cancer patients was one of them. Exercise for women receiving adjuvant therapy for breast cancer. And so there were only seven of those. And of those papers, five, only five, looked at exercise for depressive symptoms in people either diagnosed with or recovering from cancer. One looked at exercise for depression in people with HIV. And just one looked at the broader question of exercise for depression. So this is you know, very, very slim evidence. Um, and, you know, it's just not enough to actually make this statement that exercise is better than medication because they actually never actually asked that question when they did this review or answered it. I am not saying that exercise is not good for you. Exercise is definitely part of a treatment program for any type of, of mental illness. And it's also excellent as a prevention for mental illness. I mean, I have to say I, I had been traveling and about five or six days had gone by and I'd had no exercise and I was waking up in the morning. I was tired. I just wasn't myself. And I literally one day just walked 15,000 steps, did a little bit of weightlifting. I went to sleep that night. I slept so well. And it's just, I know that that exercise is so important for me. And I'm sure that it is so important for you. So I don't want you to think that exercise is useless for depression or mental health in general. It certainly helps mine and it's helped many people, but it's really when you hear something or read something, look a little bit deeper, look a little bit further into it. And it doesn't mean that exercise isn't uh, effective. It just means that we really don't have the answer we only have a few good studies on the on the subject that really aren't that good. They weren't that robust. They're not that they're not designed well. And so we really need to dig deeper, look further and know that it's not just one thing necessarily that's going to help you 
in depression or whether it's another chronic disease or another illness, oftentimes it's, it's a few things, talk therapy, exercise, medication. And oftentimes people do need medications and those SSRIs have helped a tremendous amount of people. This week I was talking to a colleague of mine and he was talking about uh, that he got an essential tremor in his right hand after having had COVID. Mind you, he's had it four times. I, I'm, and I'm not exactly sure which time he had it um, when he got the uh, essential tremor in his right hand. Um, and so, you know, we've talked about this on the program in the past that it is a neurological, they're thinking that COVID is not only a respiratory condition, but a neurological condition as well. So he was also telling me about a colleague of his who was 26 years old, who he said, you know, ever since COVID, she got POTS. And POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's a complex multi-system disorder and it's characterized by orthostatic intolerance. So basically about blood pressure and heart. And you can also get um, an elevated heart rate or tachycardia. And it can be triggered by a viral infection. And so I said to him, I had recently reviewed a study um, that in, that demonstrated that, or there were, had been reports that indicated that two to 14% of coronavirus cases, survivors develop POTS and nine to 61% experience POTS-like symptoms. And the POTS-like symptoms are tachycardia, orthostatic intolerance, so your blood pressure, fatigue, cognitive impairment within six to eight months of severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And POTS is not very well understood, and certainly the pathophysiological mechanisms of post-COVID POTS are not well understood either. But there are some hypotheses out there that include autoimmunity related to SARS-CoV-2, autonomic dysfunction, um, as well, direct toxic injury by SARS-CoV-2 to the autonomic nervous system and invasion of the central nervous system by SARS-CoV-2. And so he phoned this person immediately and said, you know, did you know that there is, there are reported cases of POTS? Now, this particular person is having to wear compression stockings, uh, having to carry salt um, because their blood pressure is dropping unexpectedly. Uh, they are passing out. And, um, you know, so if you are experiencing any of those symptoms that I mentioned, um, fainting, blood, so low blood pressure, fatigue, cognitive impairment, tachycardia, uh, you know, it would be a good idea to speak to your doctor about that because a lot of people do not realize that this particular syndrome, if you will, um, is, can be related to having been infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. POTS in general typically affects young women um, more so. It's, it's a multifactorial disorder and it is, it, it definitely impairs quality of life. Can you think of, this is going to affect this particular person's job and, um, and also driving. Um, because you never know when this is going to happen. 
um, people can experience palpitations, chest pain, shortness of breath, and exercise intolerance, or kind of this brain fog, headaches, lightheadedness, fatigue, muscle weakness, gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, sleep disturbances, and they can also experience chronic pain as well. And, and all of that reduces your ability to participate in the activities of daily living. You know, you, you just don't know what to expect and you don't know when something, some of those symptoms or all of those symptoms are going to come on. So it's, it's very important um, to speak to your doctor if, in particular, if you've had COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and you are experiencing those uh, symptoms. We, we hear, we're hearing about a lot of patients or people who have had chronic signs and symptoms after having had COVID. So anyway, something that I thought was, was quite interesting. As you know, I'm a nurse continence advisor and I see patients who have issues with their pelvic floor, everything from pelvic tone issues to prolapse to urinary incontinence constipation, um, so many issues. And oftentimes women are so surprised because women are not educated about what happens at different stages in their lives as maybe after they have a baby or during perimenopause or postmenopause. So joining me on the line is one of the authors of a fabulous book. The book is called A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor. What the bleep is going on on down there? Um, the three authors are Dr. Jennifer Anger, Dr. Victoria Scott, and joining me on the line is Dr. Karen Alber. Dr. Karen Alber is a professor of urology and an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Beverly Hills. Good evening, Dr. Alber. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. This is it is so true. Women have no idea what is going on down there, especially when they have troubles. They seem to begin to learn when they have troubles. So what was the genesis for the book? What, what all of a sudden made you think, we have to write a book? A female urologist, I, I must say, not common, <laughs> very <laughs> difficult to find a female urologist. And, and when one appears in a metropolitan area, they are applauded and completely overbooked. Um, so I, I'm so glad that three of you are in this field and we need to have more female urologists doing this kind of work. Um, but what was your inspiration for the book? Well, for all the reasons you just mentioned, you know, I've been in practice for over 20 years. And if I had a dollar for every time a woman you know, was surprised to hear that, you know, vaginal birth or just like you things were mentioning earlier, perimenopause uh, were the cause of her issues in her pelvic floor or how many times she even cried just to know that she wasn't the only one who was suffering from these. And it really is a shame that, you know, except for some really rudimentary health class in junior high, women are really quite ill-prepared to move through the different transitions in their life, whether it's, you know, before pregnancy, during pregnancy, afterwards, and then as a woman ages. Uh, absolutely. And, and your book is uh, fun. It's easy to read. It's informative. Um, you know, it, it speaks to women and, and women need this information. And, and for some reason, the, the information is kept from us <laughs> um, until we have to figure it out ourselves. Um, it, it's such a, there's such a stigma 
still associated with, uh, you know, pelvic floor health, basically with, with vaginal health, um, you know, with all of the things that can go wrong down there um, that, that surprise women. They, it's, you know, they don't, and these conditions can be debilitating for women. They can lead to anxiety and depression, isolation, infection. Um, so what are some of the most common pelvic floor issues that you see? Well, probably the most common one would be urinary incontinence or involuntary loss of urine. And, you know, a big misconception is that it is normal. Although it is extremely common, it's not normal and it can't be treated. And, you know, women are so used to wearing pads for different things, you know, starting from menstruation at a young age, that a woman just kind of accepts, oh, well, it's just one more thing to continue wearing a pad for. So it's probably the most common thing. You know, you mentioned prolapse earlier. Even if a woman you know, has her bladder falling, you can kind of deal with it. But when women start to, you know, wet themselves, that's when they really decide they probably should see a doctor or at least, you know, see if there's something that can be done about that. You know, I, I find a lot of women, you know, just out in life in general, they're just like, well, you know, you know how you just sneeze, you know, sneeze and you leak your right, like and you cough. And you, <laughs> yeah, like everybody does. And, and I remember saying to a male colleague of mine in, in the urology field, um, you know, how, when I was first starting to do this work, I said, how long does it take a woman to see a doctor about leakage of urine? And, and he said, for me, one drop <laughs> and he would be to the doctor. And, and that is so true. And women put up with so much for such a long period of time and just think, oh, well, I'll throw a pad on. It doesn't help that the pharmacies also, their number one products are adult diapers, it, you know, yeah. That's the other thing is that women don't think that there are treatments for especially urinary incontinence. So are there treatments for urinary incontinence? And by the way, guys, we have not cornered the market on this. Men leak urine too. Um, so yeah, for sure. <laughs> this conversation can help men as well, perhaps. Um, yeah. But what are some of the treatments for urinary incontinence? I think one thing to point out is that incontinence is not incontinence. So you'll see a woman for, you know, stress incontinence, which is loss of urine with physical stress, like laughing, coughing, sneezing. And although we tell women to do kegels a lot for it or her pelvic floor exercises, although that can help for mild cases, you know, really procedures such as something called a bulking agent, which is, you know, I practice in Beverly Hills. So there's fillers for the face and then there's face lifts and there's urethral slings. And if it's the one thing, you know, that I do run into a lot is someone always has a story of, well, you know, my friend's cousin's sister had a really bad, you know, experience and was worse off. But my response to that is I don't even know, you know if your friend's cousin's sister had the right surgery or where they went or if they even had the right diagnosis. So, you know, you can't always go by something here. And then there's also just overactive bladder, which I'm sure everyone's probably seen some commercial on TV or ad, you know, where someone's rushing to the toilet. And this is also very commonly affecting men as well. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I hear that same thing where people will say, you know, my friend had this particular procedure like a transvaginal yep. taping or transobturator tape and, and, and it didn't work for them. It's worse than, you know, and it's the same thing. You make a great point. Diagnosis is critical. So all urinary incontinence isn't the same. Well, and another thing to point out is statistically speaking, you know, although many women will have stress incontinence, millions and millions of men and women have overactive bladders. So lots of people have both. So you might have surgery, which fixes the stress incontinence, but you're not cured because no one really explained to you that you also probably have overactive bladder, which 
you know, is treated, as you know, with medications. And for the listeners, believe it or not, things like Botox are injecting the bladder. There are um, bladder nerve stimulators and treatments like acupuncture. So there are lots of available treatments, and the ones that's appropriate really depends on, you know, what is the degree of your incontinence and also, you know, what you're comfortable moving forward with. That's right. What is your objective here? What is, what is your goal? Um, how about basic bladder health uh, for people? Oftentimes, my patients will say, well, I've cut back on my water because I don't want to leak urine. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, there is no scientific basis behind drinking a glass of water a day. You know, we all have a thirst mechanism. I always use the analogy of, you know, your vet has never told you you have to force your dog to drink eight bowls of water a day. That's why we have thirst. On the other hand, intentionally restricting your fluids a lot so they're chronically dehydrated is also not good. So, you know, you should drink so that you're not feeling, you know, thirsty and your urine's not really dark and concentrated, but overly hydrating yourself just makes yourself, you know, pee more often and aggravates overactive bladder and actually stress incontinence also. But for general bladder health, you know, things that tend to aggravate the bladder are, you know, caffeine, carbonated things, alcohol, but everything in moderation. Like even if I have I had overactive bladder, if my doctor told me to cut out caffeine, I'd be like, all right, well, I'm finding another doctor. So everything in moderation. <laughs> exactly. And how about that wine? <laughs> well, listen, if you want me to uh, be a nicer person the next day, but let me have my glass of wine with dinner. But I also know that if I have a glass of wine right before bed, it will be normal to get up to pee. So, you know, we also have to use some common sense. That's right. And, and, and a bladder diary. I don't know if you use that in your practice, but oftentimes, you know, I, I use it with my patients and I'll find that, you know, they're, they're drinking after dinner, um, you know, lots of fluids and they're getting up at night. And that stands to reason. If you're going to drink tea and you know, a couple of t- cups of tea and glass of wine with dinner, tea afterward, glass of water before you go to bed, you know, a few hours later, you're going to have to get up and go to the bathroom. Um, how about perimenopause? What are some of the common issues that occur for women in uh, perimenopause, which can begin as early as age 37? So probably the two most common bladder symptoms that I see with perimenopause are this may be the first time that women start experiencing recurrent urinary tract infections because the hormonal changes can affect the normal microbiome of the vagina, making a woman more prone to infections, and also overactive bladder symptoms because there are estrogen receptors in the bladder. So just like when a woman gets pregnant and she has some urinary symptoms even before the uterus is enlarged with a progressing pregnancy, she can have changes in the, her bladder symptoms with perimenopausal hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. And, and guys can also get urinary tract infections as well, although they're, although they're not as common. Um, so what are some of the treatments or preventive treatments for um, urinary tract infections for um, women before we get into overactive bladder? Yeah, I mean, depending on what the cause is. So there are some women who invariably it is sexual activity that triggers a urinary tract infection. So she can either take, you know, some type of cranberry supplement at the time of sexual activity or a more surefire way, although there's a little more resistance for people to take one preventive dose of antibiotic at the time of sexual activity. And if there is nothing random, or I'm sorry, if the infections are random and say she's perimenopausal, oftentimes vaginal estrogen will do the trick. Right. And that comes in the form of a, a ring or a tablet. Ring, and also orally. Cream, tablet. Yep. 
Orally yeah. also, but and if she's perimenopausal, yeah, she may not be ready for a full hormone replacement yet. So, but again, it's no. You know, I was talking about woman's comfort osphenia. level and you I know think... different. Right. No, the the tablet I was talking about was osphenia. Is that the name, how you say it? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh huh. Osphenia. Yep. Oh, osphenia. Yeah, yeah. And um, and also interrosa is a suppository as well. Yeah. Um, so and a lot of women are nervous about taking estrogen, localized estrogen. What are you? What are your thoughts on that? So, except for really allergy, there is no contraindication for using vaginal estrogens that are commercially available. And you know, just to clarify, I'm not against bioidenticals, but the certain commercially available vaginal estrogen products have been tested extensively and they have not been shown to have any risk of breast cancer or even recurrence in breast cancer patients. So for women who have breast cancer who, you know, maybe were put early into menopause because of treatment and they're having a lot of, say, vaginal dryness and sexual issues and recurrent infections and overactive bladder symptoms, vaginal estrogen is entirely safe and can be very effective for these women. My guest is Dr. Karen Alber. Alber, she is a professor of urology and associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Beverly Hills. We're fancy here on this program. And she is the author of <laughs> A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor, <laughs> What the Bleep is Going On Down There by Jennifer Anger, Victoria Scott, and of course, my guest, Dr. Karen Alber. Uh, Dr. Alber, thank you so much for staying on the line. We do have a message from a listener who says, hi there, ladies, I'm a female, and can you please ask your guest? That's you. What does it mean if your urine is brown? I'll wait to hear your answer on the air. Great program. Thank goodness for the Sunday Night Health Show. And I want to say that, you know, kudos to you, Dr. Abler, for coming on, agreeing to come on the program and talking about these subjects with me. So I really appreciate that. So what does it mean if your urine is brown? Well, if it's brown like dark yellow, that is probably something we were discussing earlier, which is really being dehydrated. So urine is really concentrated. But brownish can also be like old blood where the red kind of turns brownish. Um, and that could mean like maybe a kidney stone or something else. So if your urine really is consistently that dark brown, despite you hydrating yourself, you probably should go see your friendly local urologist. Absolutely. Great advice. Um, thank you so much, Deborah, for texting in. If you have a question, the number to call or text is one 877 98. That's one 9898 Dr. Albert, I would like to ask you, where can you get, where can women pick up this book before I forget? We only have a few minutes left. Oh, yes. Thank you for asking. On Amazon, there is an ebook and there's also a hard copy. And the book is A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor. What the bleep is going on down there? We can't say those, we can't even <laughs> say those on the air. Um, That's right. But anyway, it's a fantastic book. We're talking about overactive bladder as well. We're talking about a, a number of different bladder conditions, but overactive bladder, if you could just quickly review what it is and what are the treatments for that? So the common symptoms with overactive bladder are urinary frequency, urgency, often urinary urge incontinence, which you have this overwhelming urge to urinate. You just can't get to the bathroom fast enough. And, and how about getting up at night as well? Like, does this happen, you know, multiple times in a day? Yeah, good question. It can also happen day and night. So that's actually a really good point. 
people who only get up at night often but don't have a problem with urinary frequency during the day, that sometimes can occur if you've got swelling of your legs so that at night when you lay down, that fluid circulates. But yes, good point. Uh, when you have overactive bladder, it's typically day and night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are probably wondering how, you know, how often should I go to the bathroom in a 24-hour period? I mean, people don't notice that they're going a lot until they start going a lot because it's like riding a bike, going to the bathroom. We really don't think about it as interfering with our lives too much. So how, how often um, in a 24-hour period should people go to the bathroom? That's a great question. Assuming someone is taking in just normal fluid intake, you know, like you're thirsty, you're not pushing fluids, typically eight times in a 24-hour period is considered normal. But, you know, if you're, again, enjoying lots of, you know, water just because you like to or you're having a couple extra glasses of iced tea or wine and you're going to the bathroom more frequently, that's not necessarily overactive bladder. That's just related to your fluid intake. Mm-hmm. And how about getting up at night? Is it normal to get up at night to urinate? Yeah, that's also a good question. It, part of getting up at night sometimes is you wake up for other reasons and then you feel that little urge to go that maybe if you had to been woken up, you would not have been woken up by the urge to go. So, you know, if you're a really good sleeper, most people don't get up at night or if they do maybe once if they've drank a lot of food with dinner or right before bed. But, you know, getting up two, three, four times, unless you're a really light sleeper, that would be considered abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. And our Deborah, our texter, texted back in and she just wanted to clarify the color. It's her urine is, or someone's urine is tea color brown. Yeah, again, tea color. And, you know, without really seeing it, it's hard to know. But I would mm-hmm. probably try to just hydrate a lot if the color stays the same. I'd probably get that checked out. Just get a you know, routine urine test and they can check for things like microscopic blood or signs of you know, other things that might be indicative of why there's a change in color. But, you know, a common thing would be if you're chronically dehydrated and it's really kind of a dark, dark yellow, almost looks tea colored. But um, I would hydrate first. And if the color doesn't change, for sure, get the urine checked. And, and she really doesn't have to hydrate that long for to have Correct. an impact. Exactly. So this is exactly. yeah, so a, few, a couple of days, perhaps. Um, how about painful sex? That's a, another common issue and that can be related to the pelvic floor or high pelvic tone. Uh, or yes. Do you commonly see that in your clinical practice? We do see that um, more in young women. Um, women, unfortunately, who have a history of sexual abuse, oftentimes, you know, I, I try to explain to people when you have high tone pelvic um, floor it's your body's way of kind of guarding. So if I come at you with like a needle, you're going to tense your muscles in preparation for pain. So women who maybe have recurrent urinary tract infections who are used to having painful urination all the time, they involuntarily contract their pelvic floor and over time they don't know how to relax it. So then things like intercourse can become painful as well. Or back to the woman with a history of sexual abuse, you know, she's tightened her pelvic floor down there because of the trauma and over time, any muscle, if you don't relax it the way it's supposed to be, will become tense and painful. Mm-hmm. And and there are treatments for dyspareunia or uh, sexual pain? Absolutely. Again, depending on the cause and perimenopause of women, oftentimes it's vaginal dryness and things like lubricants or um, vaginal estrogen can help. Women who have high tone um, pelvic floor can benefit 
um, from pelvic floor physical therapy. You can also have medications compounded like muscle relaxants that can be applied directly to the muscles in the pelvic floor. So there are treatments, again, it really depends on what the cause is. Mm -hmm. We we just have a couple of minutes left. How important Mm -hmm. are these conversations um, for women to have with their physicians and also women to have with their partners? I mean, important enough that three-year-old guy to college decided to write a book about it. We just think it's a shame. You know, I think that, you know, these days, you know, the doctor, you don't really have a lot of time to talk. And, you know, most people, Mm -hmm. I think, are either embarrassed to make an appointment specifically for this condition. And so they kind of maybe bring it up at the end of the appointment after discussing something else. And unfortunately, also, I think women also are just, kind of blown off a little bit and their concerns aren't necessarily validated. So, you know, we've heard so many women over the years say they tried to bring it up and they were told, you know, oh, just have a glass of wine, relax, or, you know, it's all in your head. Um, Things I think that women hear a lot. So these conversations and just this radio interview, which I so greatly appreciate, are all needed to help destigmatize, talk about women's sexual health. I mean, erectile dysfunction is an everyday phrase that people use, and yet we don't even realize that there is female sexual dysfunction. Exactly. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Dr. Eibel. The book is A Woman's Guide to Her Pelvic Floor, What the Bleep is Going On Down There. Thank you so much. for the In this hour, we're going to be talking about one of the greatest excuses for not being in the mood. But right now, I want to talk to you about a condition that affects so many people across Canada. It's a painful condition. It's shingles. It's also known as herpes zoster, and it's an infection of a nerve and the skin around it. And it's caused by the virus that also causes chickenpox. And it's estimated that around one in every four people will have at least one episode of shingles during their lifetime. Joining me on the line, I'm delighted to say, is Dr. Albert Schumacher. He is a family physician from Windsor, Ontario, and he's going to talk to us tonight about his experience educating and diagnosing patients with shingles, and also going to talk about the shingles vaccine and the accessibility across Canada. Good evening, Dr. Schumacher. Good evening. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're here tonight because this is such an important subject. I've had so many patients in my clinical practice have what they felt was a burning pain and, you know, difficulty getting diagnosed. And and of course, as a nurse, I can't diagnose. I can only lead them to somebody such as yourself to diagnose them. So tell me, is this a difficult situation to diagnose or shingles hard to diagnose? What are some of the symptoms and, and why is it so difficult? Yeah, it you know it can be so it, it you know it typically presents in in older individuals, but you know it can happen in kids, it can happen in teens, uh, you know throughout the age spectrum. Uh, but you know once you get you know over the age of fifty, it's certainly much more common. Now you know oftentimes you get some pretty severe pain that starts before the rash happens, and you know literally people will think that they're having you know a kidney stone because they have pain around their side that they're having some kind of terrible headache because the rash is going to end up being in their face or eye when it does come out. And it really presents a a dilemma trying to figure uh, out what's happening. Of course, once the rash comes out in its typical form, then, you know, the answer is often, you know, a lot easier. Uh, But for those initial, you know, three, four days, it can sometimes be pretty tough. And do people always get the rash? Does that always present itself? 
that it, you know, 99.9% of the time you will get some vesicles, some rash, some blistering. And, you know, the, the problem, you know, when, when that happens is that it opens up the skin and, you know, can lead to other secondary infections. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one concern. You know, the other concern is that when you do, when you do get the full-blown case, you're subject to, to nerve damage. Probably about 13% of people will end up with a condition called post-herpetic neuralgia, which means the nerve gets damaged and it continues to hurt for, you know, more than 90 days after the rash started. That that's just incredible, um, and this can be quite debilitating for people because this is nerve pain is no easy pain to handle or to manage. Yeah, correct. And you know, sometimes you're you're throwing you know all kinds of medication at it to try to you know ease or uh, or abate this. You know, and and some people will you know get on some pretty heavy you know medication to uh, to try to control this, and then sometimes have difficulty getting off. So it is. You know, it's 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 difficult to to deal with it once it's uh, once it's happening. Certainly, if you if you can get to it and diagnose it within uh, the first 72 hours of the rash coming out, there are some specific antiviral drugs that will help make it better. And I would say that using those oral antiviral drugs will make it half as bad and half as long. It's not gonna it's not gonna cure it, but it it certainly does does make a difference. And people are probably familiar with some of those are the same kinds of medications or class of medications that we use for treating cold sores. And, you know, for cold sores, we certainly have some topical medication for that. We also have oral medication. Uh, you know, one of the many that's out there is called Zovirax, and, and it works quite well. And we use the same kind of stuff for shingles. But sometimes, as you mentioned, uh, it's it's difficult for patients to get the proper diagnosis, and they might suffer for you know, a few days, a week um, before they are actually diagnosed. So uh, as you mentioned yeah. that the pain might be worse. And so the antivirals may not help in that, in that case. Is that right. correct? Yeah. If you, yeah, if you wait, if you wait too long, uh, you know, more than three days after the rash comes out, then the antivirals are not going to be as effective. So and, you, know, you, you meant- want to kind of. Go ahead. You want to try to address it, you know, as as quickly as you can. This is not this is not something where you want to wait for a few days. That's right. And before I get to how can we prevent this, because prevention is um, always beneficial. Um, you mentioned that people over the age of fifty are more likely to experience um, or be diagnosed with shingles. And why is that? Well, because the body's immune system, you know, begins to. I don't want to say dwindle but certainly deteriorate as as we age okay we just don't we just don't mount as good an immune response okay we know that you know we know that from you know when we for example we vaccinate kids the vaccines take you know much better than you know with the stuff that we do in adults and that's just sort of further proof that the immune system just starts to fail so as is failing and and you know shingles is a matter of your immune system keeping that chickenpox virus that you had as a young kid you know, contained in some cells in the spinal cord where it's been for, you know, many years. And as that ability to mount, you know, keep those uh, antibodies and keep those cells that, uh, that keep the shingles in check in the spinal cord, as that dwindles, the stuff breaks out, multiplies, travels down a nerve, and voila, you've got a big rash, a big uh-huh. painful rash. 
it, it just reminds me of, of one of the doctors <laughs> that I have worked with who's not a hugger. And he had gone away and he, and he came back um, from his trip and the medical office assistant said, um, you know, she mentioned that, or that he had hugged her and, and he had hugged me as well. And I said, he never hugs me. And then afterwards she told me that he had shingles. <laughs> like, you never hug me. And then <laughs> why did you hug me after you have shingles? <laughs> anyway, well, so that the, leads to my the question. Good, the, the good <laughs> yes. news is that the shingles isn't infectious. Okay. So, you know, someone who has, someone who has shingles is not going to spread it to you. The only people that, that someone that has shingles can spread it to is if they scratch open one of the blisters or the vesicles and stick it up the nose of a child under 15 months old who hasn't been vaccinated, ah. that's the only way you can pass it on. You know, your, your shingles comes from viruses that are already in you. Right, exactly. You know, of course, it was just a moment of panic. Like, is this, he's got shingles? Is this contagious as a germaphobe that I am? Um, but it, it is comforting to know that it's not contagious and you cannot, um, you know, get it from someone else or the risk is, sounds like right. it is extremely low, uh, which is which is fantastic. How much of a role does stress play in somebody getting shingles? Well, you know, stress, you know, stress is a, is an important, uh, is an important factor because, you know, it, it has a negative impact on your immune system and, you know, age is, is only one of the, the, uh, comorbidities that, that go along, uh, you know, with, with increasing your likelihood of getting shingles. If you have a first degree relative, so a father, mother, brother, sister, child that has had shingles, your risk of developing shingles in your lifetime triples. And the same thing oh, wow. goes for, for other, you know, common chronic diseases, you know, the stuff that we see every day. So someone who has diabetes, triple the risk of shingles. Somebody who has COPD, so chronic bronchitis and emphysema, triple the risk. Um, you know, these are, and that and many other, uh, you know, chronic conditions will increase uh, that risk. Autoimmune disease, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, and a whole host of conditions uh, also increase their risk. And by the way, those things are additive. So if your brother and your sister both had shingles before, your risk is not three times, it's six times. My guest is Dr. Albert Schumacher. He's a family physician from Windsor, Ontario. He joins me on the line and we are talking about the painful, sometimes excruciatingly painful that can painful rash that can persist beyond 90 days, shingles. Dr. Schumacher, thank you so much for staying on the line. No problem. Happy to be here. here. Great. Anyone I know that has had shingles has just been, you know, it's, they've described it as just so painful, debilitating. They cannot do their activities of daily living. I tend to see an, a bit of an older population in my clinical practice at times. Um, but it, they also are left with persistent neurological or post-herpetic neuralgia, as you mentioned. Um, how can we prevent shingles? What is the best way to prevent shingles? So best way to prevent it is, is vaccination. And, you know, we've been lucky in Canada. We've had vaccines uh, to help prevent shingles since 2009. Uh, originally, the uh, vaccine we used uh, was called Zostavax, and it was exactly the same vaccine as the chickenpox vaccine that we give to kids. 
Uh, the only difference was you gave adults 14 times as much as you gave a kid. Again, because the immune system was is no longer as smart or as active in adults. And we got some decent protection. Now, decent meant that in people between 60 and 70, it was 65% effective. In people over 70, it was just under 50% effective, but it did a good job at preventing post-herpetic neuralgia, so that chronic pain problem in the older individuals. Now, about four or five years ago, uh, a newer vaccine came out called Shingrix, which was not a live vaccine uh, like, the, uh, like the older one, but in fact was, was a, we'll call it a dead vaccine. Uh, and you got two doses, and it provides uh, immunity greater than 90% effectiveness, uh, even for people over the age of 90 years. So it doesn't matter how old you are, extremely effective. The other good uh, news is that now, nine years later, we still know that after being on board for nine years, it's still 85% effective from our studies. Wow, that that's amazing. Um, now, let me ask you, the you, you mentioned the V word, <laughs> which post-pandemic um, can send shivers through people, given uh, all of the controversies surrounding the COVID vaccines. Has there been have there been challenges um, getting the word out, educating people? Have people stopped getting the shingles vaccine as a result? Well, you know, one, I mean, one of, the, uh, one of the problems was that, you know, the vaccine sort of came out in about uh, 20, the new vaccine in about 2019. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, its, its dissemination was certainly interrupted, you know, by, uh, by pandemic, by lockdown you know, by the attention paid to, you know, getting, you know, not only initial COVID shots, but, but multiple boosters. And, you know, at this point in time, you know, we're like 13 years since the vaccine first came out. It's had, you know, good, it's it's had uh, good uh, private coverage. It's had, you know, some public coverage, only 28% of eligible people, uh, you know, over the age of 50 have had the vaccine. So the vast majority wow. of, of adults have not had it, you know, and, and again, there's, there's some people under 50 who should be, we should be immunizing as well, you know, that, you know, mm-hmm. we can't forget about some high risk individuals under that age group who would certainly qualify for it and benefit from it. But we're, and, yeah, we're behind. And would those people be people with uh, compromised immune systems, people under the age of 50? Yeah, absolutely. With compromised immune systems, somebody, you know, who, who's, who is going to get, you know, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, uh, mm-hmm. somebody who is being treated with a biologic for, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's, psoriasis, and so forth, um, you know, high-dose steroids, all of those people, uh, even if they're under 50, are going to, uh, are going to benefit from, uh, from vaccination. Because they're going to be at greater risk for contracting or... Uh, getting Absolutely. Shingles. Greater, greater risk, greater risk of, of, of contracting and then, you know, higher risk, you know, of having complications, you know, from it, including, including the post-herpetic neuralgia. Right. And then that adds just another problem already onto their existing situation, which can, can be, you know, quite terrible if, especially if they're yep. going through cancer treatments or, um, yep. having to use Last biologics thing you need on top of that. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yes. And so tell me about the vaccine. Is It's a two injection vaccine over? So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a two injection vaccine. You ideally want to do it two months apart and ideally not more than six months apart. So there is a little bit of flexibility. Now, this vaccine makes your arm sore. They have mm-hmm. built in a beacon that attracts the immune system that says, hey, immune system, come check this out. And that adds to the soreness. So you know, we usually tell people that, you know, if you're right-handed, we want to do this in your left arm. Yes, it's going to be sore for a day or two. Yes, you may have a little bit of fever. Yes, your arm may turn red, okay? So, you know, probably, you know, 40% of, of people will have, a, you know, a significant enough uh, reaction. Again, not something that, that needs any kind of, of treatment. It's just if you let people know ahead of time. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be sore. Uh, then they're ready for it. And then the good news is the second the second dose isn't worse than the first dose. Um, oh, that's good. In fact, for for most people, it's it's less. You know, with with other vaccines, once you've started to build immunity, that's when you know it makes the the subsequent the second dose or the third dose sore. But that hasn't been the case with the shingles vaccine. Well, well, that's great. Um, now, government's covering this. It sounds to me like that that they should. Um, so cover this, yeah, and cause and they and they kind of you know they they kind of sort of are. So the uh-huh. the Shingrix vaccine, I mean, it's licensed for for everybody, and it's and it's strongly recommended by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization for everybody over the age of fifty. Okay, it's uh-huh. also recommended for higher risk people, un, you know, over the age of eighteen and, and less than fifty. Those are also uh, it's it's recommended for. Uh, however, governments have have sort of you know gone and looked at you know cost effectiveness as they they always do, and uh, in Ontario currently they are providing it to people between the ages of 65 and 70 as part of the public health program. Now because of the pandemic, a lot of people not having gotten it for the remainder of 2023. Uh, if you're 73, between 65 and 73, you're eligible. And I'm sure in other provinces, I, I can't quote you, you know, province by province, but I believe there are similar mechanisms of payment out there for some select age groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does seem to me that, you know, these can be debilitating conditions, require, people requiring more medical care. You know, it doesn't seem like a lot of money. Um, do they cost around 175 for each dose, that's about that... yeah. That's about the price. The price is about one seventy-five for each dose. You need two doses. And again, yes. you know, most m- the majority of of private drug plans, you know, pretty much every pro- private drug plan will cover it. Now, I know, uh-huh. you know, not every not every Canadian has one, but you know, uh, the the majority of Canadians do have a dr- private drug plan that will cover it. You know, in those ages outside where the government does, uh-huh. and you know, one certainly should be taking advantage of that to for a condition like this. Absolutely, they should. Dr. Schumacher, thank you so much for joining the program tonight. Excellent information. I really appreciate it. We'll get you back because we've got to get that uptake up. <laughs> get thank your shingles you. My vaccine. pleasure, Marie. As you all probably know, an age-old excuse for not being in the mood is having a headache. A headache, like other things in the bedroom, you can fake. But what about a migraine? Migraine is one of the leading causes of disability in Canada. Almost 3 million Canadians will experience a debilitating migraine today. 
But there is new hope for Canadians. Dr. Priya Dawan, clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, is on the line to talk to us about two new migraine treatment options that are now available to British Columbians living with migraine. Hopefully it'll be available to those of you listening in Ontario and across the country in Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan as well. Good evening, Dr. Dawan. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you because in part, I actually think, I'm not sure, (laughs) I was only diagnosed (laughs) on radio a few years, (laughs) a while back, but I think that I actually get migraines as well. (laughs) So (laughs) I will get time to go to the doctor one of these days to get a diagnosis, but I, I don't do the things that trigger it, but you know more about this than I do. So what is a migraine, first of all? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question, and I think I was giving a talk the other day and uh, to some family physicians, and we were having this conversation about exactly what a migraine is. And I think if patients and other physicians really understand that question, then the whole process becomes a lot easier to take seriously and to treat and to figure out what's the most effective way to treat it. So we think of migraine is not just a headache, in fact. Um, The headache piece is just a small part of this whole disorder that in neurology we think of as a sensory processing disorder. So what I tell my patients is is if you're a migrainer, you're going to experience the world quite a bit differently than everybody else. And so if you get a whiplash and are a migrainer, you're going to experience that differently. If you get a sinus infection or a cold, you're going to experience the world differently because your brain it's a brain process and your brain is primed to experience the world in a very sensitized way. And so when we think about treating migraine, we think about a very sensitive brain uh, that is sensitive to neurochemicals that are released and sensitive to the world around us. And so, yes, I strongly recommend that you see someone about your migraines because the chances are they're <laughs> causing more trouble than you, than you know. You know, they are, you know, it, 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 I, This sounds like it's like an invisible neurological disease. And, you know, that's amazing because I just said to my sister recently who said, you know what? I mean, I have not had COVID, knock on wood, because I am very, very careful. And I said, because when I get a respiratory infection, I am down for the count for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy life far too much to be down for the count for three weeks. And so I am almost fearful of getting a sinus infection or respiratory, upper respiratory tract infection. Um, I have some other triggers as well. So I, that's in part why I live the way that I do and try and eat well and exercise and go to sleep on time, get adequate sleep. And I don't drink alcohol because that is a huge trigger for me. Absolutely. Um, And you know, like people, people really get debilitated during one of these attacks. But, you know, I think it's, in, and, and all the things, for example, that you're doing are probably making your life easier, but it's hard mm-hmm. for patients to feel like they have to live on edge with the impending doom of an attack coming and they can't have a glass of wine and they can't get a respiratory infection and they can't have a late night because they're going to be just debilitated the next day. And so some of the things and options that we have to treat migraines are to try to give patients a bit more buffer so they can live their life. Hmm. I mean, I'm quite happy <laughs> the way I live my life. And I don't. <laughs> I don't. Fe- I mean, the only thing I probably fear is that respiratory infection. Um, sure. But I don't get 
I, I really don't get, uh, I didn't know that it was associated with a sinus infection, for example, but I mean, I, sinus infection practically kills me. Um, but, uh, I, alcohol is a definite trigger. You know, I, I mm. have to have sleep or I'm not productive mm. the next day, but I've, I've often associated it with, you know, I actually live a fairly highly productive life and, and people will often mm. ask me, you know, how I do as much as I do <laughs> when they hear about what I do, mm -hmm. but it's because I feel well mm -hmm. all the time and I, and I really don't like yeah. to, um, not to feel well as a, I'm sure a lot of people listening out there, um, are the same, but that's just so interesting to me that, it, that will, we experience the world a little bit differently. Um, do migraines yeah. affect, uh, women more than men? So generally, yes. Um, and there's, Two reasons for that. I think one is a diagnosis. I mean, we think we we, we know about 2.7 million Canadians have been diagnosed with migraine. However, that is kind of the tip of the iceberg with respect to how many people actually have migraine, because mm -hmm. uh, you know up to up to you know 70% of men can be undiagnosed out of that percentage, and you know 30 to 40% of women. We know that women are often more affected than men because of the. Uh, hormonal predilection that can happen. So when, when hormones fluctuate during puberty, when they fluctuate during perimenopause and menopause, that can have, uh, that can be a very big trigger for migraines um, that doesn't exist mm -hmm. in men. So we do know it's more common in women, but I think perhaps not as much more common as general population believes. It's quite common in men and male migraine is, is, is often underdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned it's not just a headache and it's not just a headache. Yeah. Um, what no. are some of the other symptoms that uh, go along with migraine? So um, migraines tend to, and then some people start with a prodrome and a prodrome can be anything from generalized fatigue or body aches to a feeling of carbohydrate or chocolate craving or some irritability. And then about 15 to 20% of migraineurs will have aura and aura represents um, uh, can represent multiple symptoms. So patients can get visual symptoms like flashing lights and blind spots in their vision, or they can lose their ability to speak properly. Their language can get, become impaired, or they can have weakness or sensory loss on one side of their body. And that's, we, we call that an aura. But then the migraine itself, even if you don't have aura, patients will present with sensitivity to the world around them. And so the classic things are sensitivity to light and sound, um, sensitivity to smells, but also sensitivity to movement. So if you ask a migraine patient if they can go for a run when they have a headache, they'll laugh at you. They'll be like, absolutely not. Whereas some other kinds of headaches, like for example, tension type headaches or headaches induced by stress or dehydration, patients often feel better when they exercise during an attack. So that's one of the things mm -hmm. that can help us tease out whether this is migraine or something else that we're dealing with. Um, and then mm -hmm. above and uh, above all of this, patients kind of feel crummy. They feel like they have a hangover. They can feel cognitively mm -hmm. impaired, and they're very, very tired. Mm -hmm. I, I get things like nasal congestion, um, just yeah. nausea. Um, you know, and two of my siblings have actually been diagnosed with migraines, and and yes. one's trigger yes. is sense, and so he yes. can't have any sense at all. Um, you know, which is you know. I mean, he's adjusted, Hard. but, but yeah, yeah um, it certainly is. You bring, up a really, is it you bring up a really good yeah. point. Yeah, genetics. Yes. So you bring up two super points, Maureen. One of them is nasal congestion. Um, 
Nasal congestion and the fact that migraines are triggered by barometric pressure change is, an, is a common reason why migraines are misdiagnosed as sinus headaches. And so it's really oh. important to remember that even though patients' sinuses can feel congested, even though barometric pressure can trigger a headache, um, actually most of the time it's not an active sinus infection. It's actually all migraine. And those things can be difficult to tease out if you've had one or both things. But that's something to talk to your GP about if that's the case, because sometimes patients get treated with sinus treatments and they're not getting better and they're still getting headaches. And what they actually need is a good migraine med. Um, and then the second point that you really made that was beautiful is, is the genetics of this. So migraine is an exquisitely genetic disorder. And so we come into the world, if you're a migrainer, kind of ready to, ready to experience pain the way a migrainer would. And so usually if you do enough digging, you can find a family member or two with similar headaches. Maybe not as severe, but similar headaches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to say mine are, are few and far between. And, um, right. you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me, but I've, I've, I actually changed my life <laughs> as a result yeah. and, you know, have lived this way for a while and, and it definitely works for me. Um, we're going to go to break, but when I come back, I want to talk about whether or not there's a cure and um, what are the two new migraine treatment options available to British Columbians living with a migraine? I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. My guest is Dr. Priya Dewan. She's a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, and we are talking about migraines. I am learning so much. So if you are just tuning in now, you want to go to the podcast afterward because we're definitely going to replay this. So you can go to Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to your favorite uh, uh, podcasts. Anyway, Dr. Dewan, this is just incredible to me, especially about the sinus piece, because I definitely um, have had that all my life, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't associate it with, with migraine. Um, we mentioned it's an invisible neurological disease. It's more than just a headache. but um, And 50% and of diagnosed patients are, or less than 50% are able to take migraine medication to manage their disease. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a beautiful multi-center study that showed that even when patients got the correct diagnosis of migraine, a huge percentage of them were not able to take daily medications to prevent headache or rescue medications to treat a headache. And the biggest reason for that was a side effect profile. Uh, and then other reasons were like access because of cost and insurance. Um, right. Because some of our newer migraine medications are expensive, but it's it's really hard when you have a disease that you're trying to treat, but the patients hate the treatment because they don't tolerate it or it's not working well for them. So the more options Absolutely. we have, the more receptors we can target, the more tools we have in our toolbox, the more likely we'll find something that works for a patient. And, and currently, there are two new migraine treatment options now available to British Columbians. Tell me about those. Please. Okay, we're so excited about these. There's two of them. They're very similar drugs. The first one is Ubrojeprant or Ubrevly. Um, and Ubrevly is used for a rescue. So when a patient has a migraine, they will take this medication to try to relieve it. Similar to some of the other things that people take. So Sumatriptan, Rizotriptan, Naproxen, Ibuprofen, other rescue medications. And then the cousin of this drug is Culipta or Atojapant, and that is an everyday medication that's taken to try to prevent headaches coming on in the first place. 
they're very similar drug. One kicks around in the body, uh, body and blood a little bit longer than the other. Um, but one of the most exciting things about this medication, if anyone is ever a migraineer and has taken a medication like a tryptan, like rizotriptan, for example, you know that your neurologist will tell you you're only allowed to take nine of these a month or so. And that's because if you overuse rescue medications, you're at risk for something called medication overuse headache. Uh, so the headaches can paradoxically wow. get worse if you take too many rescue meds. But this drug, wow. um, as far as the literature shows, there's no risk of this. So technically, you could take this rescue medication every day and not have uh, a risk of paradoxically getting worse. So it's a really nice option. That is such a great option. And, and it's covered under uh, MSP for in British Columbia? Is that so the way it works in British Columbia, the rescue medication is covered under all drug plans without need for prior authorization, and, it, and it's mm-hmm. about $15 a pill. Um, the preventative medication, or Tulipta Atojapant, um, is covered by medical plans. We're still figuring out what that looks like in the insurance scape, um, but patients will require uh, alternate, a third-party coverage in order to be pre-approved for that drug at this point. Mm-hmm. But at least it's some options um, for British Columbians. Are these meds Absolutely. available across Absolutely. the country? You know, it's a really good question. Uh, we're still figuring things out in BC, so I can't speak for other provinces. Um, but I know in BC, uh, Culipta is already available, and Ubrevoli will be available April 6th in BC. Mm-hmm. Well, this is awesome, especially for people who are suffering daily. Um, I, I have Absolutely. a sister-in-law as well. And she suffers mm-hmm. tremendously um, with migraines mm-hmm. and has four children. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's really you can hard. Imagine. It's really hard. Yeah. She doesn't have the luxury yeah. of sitting in bed, you know? Yeah. No, no, she does not. And she's a, a working outside, in and outside of the home mom with four kids. Um, and Absolutely. so, this is great news for, um, for people. I mean, it, it's just awesome. So, there's no cure for migraines. Is that right? No, there's no cure. As we talked about before the break, Maureen, it's a genetic disorder. And so, you know, if we have a genetic disorder, we can't change our genetics. But what we can do, we think about migraine like uh, a disorder of thresholds. So the more things that we can do to raise the patient's threshold for experiencing pain, the better off they'll be. And so all the lifestyle stuff that you were already doing, for example, is a huge part of it. And then the second part is we give drugs to try to raise that threshold. And the cool thing about these class of drugs and some of the ones that have come before that is they're the kind of first group of drugs that are designed to actually work on pain molecules for migraineurs. It's, in the old days, we had a blood pressure medication that kind of also, also treated migraine or an antidepressant that also treated migraine. But these are migraine-specific drugs that work on specific chemicals mm-hmm. that get released in a migraineur. That is awesome. And thank you so much Mm -hmm. for educating the listeners and all of your great work. And, you know, who knew there's people out there um, trying to advance the progress of treating this condition um, of of Uh, migraine and especially so many people suffer, but, you know, oftentimes they suffer in silence. Absolutely, Maureen. I mean, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And and before um, we end up, I I just want to make Uh, folks aware of a really beautiful reference. My colleague Elizabeth LaRue is a very uh, brilliant neurologist out of Quebec who has done a lot of work on the Migraine Canada website. So there's podcasts, Mm -hmm. there's videos, there's resources, and there's also a migraine tracker so patients can accurately track 
how many headache days they're having a month and give that information by email to their doctor. Um, it's a beautiful resource and a lot of time has gone into it. So I, I thought I'd just mention that. Migraine Canada. Wonderful. MigraineCanada.ca. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the program I'm, and uh, I'm, I I'm am going to go and get yeah. uh, <laughs> have an assessment <laughs> by one of the GPs that you spoke to <laughs> the other day. There so we go. There we go. Yes, <laughs> exactly. If you, could send, well. if you could send me that list, please. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> I would love that. All right. All right, Maureen, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.